This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Timing is everything. The pandemic and softening of the office market in downtown Honolulu turned out to be bad enough to prompt the decision this week to close the King Street Walmart. But it comes as developers are moving to redevelop the urban core. The delay of rail hasn't helped. The critical mass needed to build a community just isn't coming fast enough. Council member Tyler Dos Santos Tam talked to Walmart and plans to meet with officials about the growing concern over the pullout. The news comes as we focused all this week on the redevelopment development of downtown and the concept of rehabbing old buildings to build more housing. The area lawmaker uh, at Honolulu City Council introduced Bill 21 to help spur the redevelopment faster. You know, one of the issues with adaptive reuse is that our building code and our housing code aren't in alignment. And there are some things that are required in our housing code as it stands right now that go far above and beyond what's in the International Building Code that every other city across the country, New York, San Francisco, you name it, uh, follows. And as a result of it being misaligned, the people who are trying to do adaptive reuse, uh, especially in downtown office buildings, have to follow these very uh, restrictive uh, policies. And so I introduced Bill 21, uh, which is uh, just had its first reading earlier this month, and it's going to go to committee uh, the first week of April. And what this does is it exempts uh, one portion of the housing code for projects that otherwise follow the International Building Code. And this pertains specifically to office buildings. Right now in the housing code, you have to provide a certain amount of window space per bedroom, you have to provide a certain amount of operable windows, that is windows that you can open uh, per bedroom. But if you're going to be renovating a downtown office building, the windows that are there right now, uh, it doesn't really make sense to do that. And um, to replace all the windows or perhaps you know, drill into the walls and expand the windows would be very, very onerous. And so we're saying if you're following the International Building Code, what every other jurisdiction across the country is following, you know, that's fine. And then there are other provisions in our housing code that we're hoping to uh, look at later this year and really put them under a microscope and say, is this really about public health and safety at this point, or is this already covered in the International Building Code? You know, what are we really trying to do with these additional requirements that go above and beyond what every other city around the country uh, is required to do? Uh, does it serve uh, the public good, especially given our enormous housing challenge? There's also the 201H tool that uh, some developers can use, right, to put up affordable housing, and you get exemptions, you get waivers yeah. from some of these requirements, uh, zoning requirements, building requirements. But if you're not building that type of affordable housing, you know, then you're out of luck. There are a number of challenges with 201H. Uh, the 201H process on the state side and the 201H process on the city side are also slightly out of alignment. So what happens is, Perhaps you satisfy all of the state requirements, but come over to the city and you're not in alignment with the city standards for 201H projects. And that puts us as the city council, this puts DPP in sort of an awkward position because if we were to reject a project, it would go right back to the state and the state would approve it under their standards. And so, you know, we need to have more discussion with the state's housing folks. I think they need to come and have a conversation with us as well about how we can align these better, how we can make this process smoother. Additionally, there are a number of affordable housing projects that, for whatever reason, don't apply for the 201H process because there is a lot of paperwork involved. But they are committed to providing um, lower income or workforce housing. But because they don't strictly meet the uh, standards articulated in 201H, they don't get some of the waivers. So there's a project right now in Chinatown that is getting a $4 million grant from the city because they're gonna be providing very low-income housing at 30% AMI. But because they don't exactly follow all of the criteria for 201H and 
thus aren't eligible for the fee waivers, the city's charging them $1.2 million in park dedication fees, which many of the other developers have to pay. We're also charging them about $400,000 in plan review fees. And so our $4 million grant, the city is clawing back $1.6 million. What did we really accomplish here by doing that? What ends up happening is we're just moving money around from one city department to another. And meanwhile, this project you know, can't take advantage of all the waivers that other projects that are actually targeting a higher affordability level can take advantage of. And to me, that's not fair. And so we need to look at how we're applying the 2H process and other fair, uh, fee waivers across the board. So the system is not efficient. Correct. There are definitely inefficiencies in the system. There's timing issues as well that we need to deal with. Uh, for example, our building permits take a very long time to issue. And in this business and in the uh, interest rate environment that we find ourselves in, time is definitely money. And so every delay that we put on an affordable housing project simply because of plan reviews or simply because of bureaucracy, that costs money and who ends up paying the eventual renters. Well, you have a background in the building trades, you know, and, you know, as you look at this issue in your district, you know, it's like, how do we balance this? You know, how do we make sure that we're not just giving away the store to the developers? And yet when we have a critical housing need, how can we eliminate some of these barriers so that we can build smarter and faster and greener? This is something that we're going to be looking at from the council side. I know the administration is committed to doing this as well, but looking at the package of benefits that we give and what the parameters are, because I think what ends up happening with these 201H projects right now is, you know, they, they kind of can pick and choose which waivers they want to access. And, you know, sometimes they want a little bit more, so they beg and plead for that particular waiver. And sometimes that doesn't seem fair to the community or sometimes one developer asks for a certain waiver, another developer asks for the same waiver, but one gets the waiver and one doesn't. And that, of course, isn't fair treatment either. And so I think we need to have a policy or maybe a set of policies that's very clear that says this is what we are willing to contribute as the city, whether that's fee waivers or other sorts of expediting of permits. But these are standards that you know, we, we can't waive. You know, these are fixed, immutable things that everyone must do. Well, it sounds like there has to be some degree of flexibility, fairness. You know, at the end of the day, does it get us to our end goal, which is, you know, building our inventory of housing? Right. And I think another thing that I'd like to work on, and the city is doing this through Bill 10, which looks at our land use ordinance on the whole, is our existing zoning for apartment districts. So our A1, A2, A3 apartment zones. What's allowed there is actually very limiting. And so this contributes to the monster home phenomenon because it's prior to 2017 or so, it was very, very easy to build 20 bedrooms in the back of Palolo Valley or in Kaimaki or in Luliha. But it was practically impossible to build 20 apartment units in sort of the same footprint on Macaulay Street or Date Street or School Street, somewhere where it's apartment zoned. And I think that contributed to the monster home phenomenon. And so I think we need to, you know, reverse that situation and say, if you want to build apartment units and follow all the rules and every one of these units has, you know, the bedroom and parking and the kitchen and everything else, we should help to make that happen. Another point that that we need to make a little bit clearer is what you as a developer are able to do by right and what you have to ask for waivers for. Frankly, for some of the things that our affordable housing developers ask for, like certain setback requirements or certain height things, just a few feet, I mean, nothing crazy. But you know, what can we offer them by right? If you're properly zoned, if the infrastructure's there, you shouldn't have to beg for an exception. For some of these things, maybe we just make it a rule that by right you're allowed to go a little bit more you know, into what otherwise would be the front yard setback. Another good example is for some of these apartments right now, we require a double wide driveway. And for some of these apartments, their street frontage doesn't really accommodate that. 
if you only have 10 units in a very small apartment, you don't really need a double wide driveway. I mean, one car can come out, the other car can wait, but to require a double wide driveway means a lot more construction costs. You have to reconfigure you know, the entrance to the parking. That's just one example. This isn't exactly reuse, but mm-hmm. you know, the city currently has about three dozen Bill 7 projects in various stages of the, of the pipeline. And these are the affordable apartment program that the mayor has been really pushing for. There's about 36 permits currently in the queue. By law, the permits are supposed to be approved in 90 days. Oh, right. Yeah. And very few of them, if any, are approved in that timeline. And so take those three dozen or so projects that are sitting there, that's about 800, almost 900 units. And they are waiting in the queue to simply put a shovel in the ground. That's mm-hmm. not acceptable. Getting back to reuse though, yep. the latest thing of course that we heard is, you know, Walmart closing. Right. You know, some folks used to go there for groceries or, yep. or, or whatnot. And I know that that's a component, right? That's a lot of the developers are talking about is, it, you know, we could use a, a grocery store. Well, you know, the Walmart folks called me yesterday and said, you know, we're planning on closing the store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I'd love to meet with your real estate people in the next several weeks to talk about, you know, what the plans are for the future. You know, do they lease it out to some other use or maybe subdivide it? Uh, and it's, you know, multiple stores kind of in one complex. Or, you know, maybe there's some complete other use that's not retail uh, that we can use this property for. For me, having a giant, dark, hulking shell is unacceptable on Fort Street Mall, on Mm -hmm. King Street, which is a major thoroughfare. It's also just unacceptable for Fort Street Mall to be completely dead after four o'clock, after everyone in the office buildings go home. It's just kind of countered to this whole idea of trying to bring more families down there. So what are the other things that make a neighborhood a neighborhood, right? And it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg issue. We want more residents there to activate the spaces, but without active spaces, we're not going to attract families and other folks to live in our downtown core, which is why I think the prospect of converting our empty office buildings or maybe parts of office buildings to residential is really a key component of this. We've had a soft office market for years, but it's very difficult to do these conversions. And so, you know, to the extent that the city can make things a little bit easier from the building code or housing code side to do an office to residential conversion, you know, we're here to support that. We start with Bill 21, and later this year, hopefully we have uh, some more legislation to help make these conversions possible. That was Honolulu City Council member Tyler DeSantos Tam talking about the revitalization of the urban core, a district that he represents. Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Karan Bajaj, author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to live a creative life in a material world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Civil Beat today features a story about a proposed first responders campus in Mililani. The proposal for the mega complex failed to pass muster last year, and this session appears to be losing some traction. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us for our reality check. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is a first responder cybersecurity mega complex. 
Yeah, it, it is a mega complex for sure. It's uh, two, supposed to be a 243 acres, which is about the size of Kapiolani Park, at, with including the zoo, um, and it would include all kinds of things, uh, training centers, uh, plus housing, even a um, even a hotel. Um, again, it's quite a um, quite a project. And so uh, the governor uh, didn't sign this uh, last year. Uh, it's come back right. again. And so uh, where are we at with this? So where we're at now is the a bill to fund us with at least $100 million has made its way through the Senate. Um, and it made its way through most of the House. Um, but it is stalled. Um, with the uh, Committee on Higher Education and Technology. Uh, this is headed by Amy Peruso, the representative uh, who represents that area where it would be located. And she says, nope, she's not holding a hearing. Uh, she's going to let the bill die because it does not make sense. Yeah, I think the quote that you have <laughs> in your story is that she says it's ludicrous. Yeah, that's right. She says it's ludicrous. Again, it's, it's very expensive. Um, $100 million just for the beginning is of infrastructure, not even the build-out of this facility. Um, and it's on agriculture land. You know, people say we need agriculture, we need food, food security, not um, more development. And, you know, she said the same thing. She said we, we, we should be focusing on other issues like housing. Well, uh, in uh, a previous plans, your your article you know points out that what it included a pool, a gym, and then uh, also had plans for what a uh, some housing and community center. Pretty elaborate. Yeah, it still has yes, it still has plans. The current plan still has plans for uh, workforce housing and a community center. Um, the previous one, I think, specified a, a police dog facility, other things. So it, it's really a what you can imagine, everything um, first responders would want, uh, which has attracted uh, entities like the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, which is now housed at Diamond Head in these World War One era bunkers. And they say, we really need a new home. So they would go there. Um, also, the Hawaii Office of um, Enterprise Technology Services, which is kind of like the state's IT office, um, wants to go there too. They say they're located in the basement of a building off Punchbowl and that they're flood prone and really need to, uh, to move. Um, so that makes sense. But one of the notable uh, parties that's not going is the Honolulu Police Department. They say, we really don't want to be part of this. We don't need it. So you've got the 2,000 plus uh, employee agency, one of the biggest first responders on the island that says, we don't want to be part of the first responders part. Yeah, and if they don't want to play ball, you're, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Right. It's a bit of a head scratcher. And, you know, as we know, the main proponent of this bill uh, is Senator Donovan De La Cruz, uh, the Ways and Means Committee chairman. Um, he's from that area and really is uh, has a vision of economic development that involves using land uh, to develop things and de developing state land. So in this case, um, this somewhat obscure agency called the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation actually bought the land from Castle and Cook um, and is really spearheading this thing which for, again, Representative Peruso and others is a head scratcher because this is supposed to be, this Hawaii Technology Development Corporation is really supposed to be one of these entities designed for economic development by growing a tech sector. You know, you can imagine growing tech startups and really encouraging that sort of thing. Uh, one of its projects is this uh, Entrepreneur Sandbox in Kaka'ako, a sort of co-work space for startup companies and entrepreneurs. This, this idea of a uh, tech park or a park for first responders really falls outside of the organization's stated mission. The one thing the organization does have, though, is the power to buy land. Mm. And um, it looks like that's what um, Senator Dela Cruz was 
uh, focusing on, saying, hey, they have the power to buy land. Let's have them do it. Right. Well, uh, yeah, my understanding is that some of these agencies, I think, are in the inundation zone, so they did want to move them inland. Uh, But, yeah, it sounds like this uh, bill uh, has some issues. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support cultural reporting on HPR. Kumuhula Auli'i Mitchell has worked for more than 30 years to bring back hula ki'i. The tradition involves using puppets to tell a story. It was almost lost after the missionaries banned hula. It's a sitting hula where we bring the ki'i alive with chant, oli, and then as they awaken, they become the vehicles for the story to be told through. I want to form relationships globally with other indigenous communities and peoples and their puppetry because you go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, they have them. Right. You go to Samoa, they have them. You know, storytelling is all we had. We're oral peoples. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our next story is a feel-good story. Fourth and fifth graders at Lanai Elementary got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity yesterday. They talked to an astronaut aboard the International Space Station by a shortwave radio. It was an opportunity that took a year of planning and paperwork by fifth grade teacher uh, Daniel Erickson. The process included starting a science club, going on field trips, and inviting guest speakers to the school. The school also partnered with a nonprofit called ARIS, which is dedicated to inspiring students to pursue their interest in science. The Conversations' Russell Subiano got the chance to talk with Erickson and fourth grader Shia Costales about the experience. So I've been preparing. I started to write a proposal last year in March. And then over the summer, I started to do more research. And then this year, I started a science club, and we hold that every Thursday for the elementary. And there's also a middle school and high school science club. We've invited lots of guest speakers in to have labs and different experiments with the students. I've also been working with STEMWorks of Maui, and they have helped with professional development for me as a teacher. They've also helped with the AMUS space conference. We were able to take 17 students from the school over and meet an astronaut in real life. So it was a really cool connection leading all the way up to this event. Very cool. Shia, how excited were you to be able to talk to an astronaut up in the International Space Station? What was your favorite part of that whole experience? My favorite part of the experience was like like him saying my name. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. When you were talking to him, what kind of things did you guys talk about? Did you ask him some questions or was there anything that you were interested in knowing? We asked him questions that we like wanted to know, okay. what, like what they would do and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that that's a very unique job floating around up in up in space and, and working on the International Space Station. Danielle. Can you describe some of the equipment that you and your students use to be able to talk to the astronauts? Well, because we used a telebridge today, it was quite a simple process. All of the legwork went back to the ham radio operator that was actually based in Belgium. So he made the contact with the radio there. He contacted the space station with the radio and then... From there, we did a connection using Google Meets to connect with the Eris mentor, and he's located in Florida. And then we also had another radio operator who helps with the download on the YouTube channel. His name is Gordon, and he is based out of Michigan. Wow. So it kind of was a lot of different people across the world helping you guys get linked up. That's pretty amazing to think about. Shia, 
When you think about all the work that you and your class did leading up to this talk that you had today with the astronaut, and then when you think about the things that happened during the talk, did it meet all of your expectations? Did you think it went the way that you thought it would go? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I was thinking like one of us would like do an accident, but it went really good. It went pretty smoothly. <laughs> yeah. Were you the only student that got to speak to the astronaut or were there some more? There was like a lot more. <laughs> a lot more. What were some of the things that you were interested in talking to the astronaut about? Like what was it like suit made out of? Like, yeah, like what was your suit made out of? And are they constantly floating around? I mean, that's that's just what I think about in my head. But it uh, were they floating around, or is there gravity inside the space station? Mm. Is there gravity? <laughs> no. Yeah, <laughs> I I didn't think so either. But that'd be kind of cool, you know, just kind of floating around all day. Danielle Lanai High and Elementary School has one of the state's lowest enrollments, and just because you know you're on one of our state's smallest islands. How did this opportunity come about? I read that you and your students, you, you had already mentioned that you started a science club and organized a few events, but how were you able to connect with the International Space Station beyond that? Did you have to file some paperwork with an organization or was there somebody else that helped you get connected? So it all started back in March of last year with a very slim deadline. And I was talking with someone that works in astronomy and she told me about this event and it sounded so exciting. I just finished up a PBL project at school and I was looking for something else to do with my students. I think it's important to open them up to new possibilities. And I said, you know, this is once in a lifetime. We should try for it, you know, like we need those opportunities more than ever with these students to engage them in other things outside of our small island. So I started the process and it was a very lengthy proposal. Lots of people had to sign papers. I had to get permissions from a lot of different places and organizations just to submit the proposal. And then along the journey, we had to file lots more paperwork and, and talk to a lot of different agencies just to get it going. Did you find that your location and size of the school, did you find that that was kind of an asset in getting all that paperwork in that people kind of look at you guys and go, oh, yeah, let's you know, this this is a small school. Let's let's get these guys through. I think in the eyes of Eris and NASA, they looked at it that way. But I actually didn't have a lot of community support. Surprisingly, we are a small community, but I was very shocked and surprised that I didn't have more support moving forward on this project. Hopefully with how successful this one went, hopefully this will kind of open everyone's eyes and, and hopefully support you and your and your students moving forward. Shia, you may live in a small town and on a small island, but that doesn't mean that you can't dream big. How does this experience impact your dreams and goals for your future? Do you feel like you're more interested now in a career in science? Does it make you feel like more is possible than you thought could happen? Yeah, my dream was to be like a doctor, but like now, like I just had the experience talking to an astronaut. It's like now wanting me to like be um, an astronaut. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever think, you know, like last year or two years ago, do you ever think you'd be talking to somebody floating around in space? <laughs> Do you have an idea of, of what it might take to become an astronaut? Has anybody talked to you about that? No, but what I think is like, try your best. Yeah, like, yeah. Right. Are you afraid of flying? That might be one thing that you'd have to do to be an astronaut. Mm, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could fly like, like my body can fly. Yeah, that'd be that'd be cool. That'd be cool. And, and you might, you know, if you're if you get the chance to get up in space, you you know, you might get that that opportunity to to fly a little bit as you're floating around in zero gravity. Daniel, what are your plans for the future? 
how do you feel you can build on this opportunity for future students? I think this opportunity has opened a lot of people's eyes across Hawaii to know that things are possible. Even this tiny school can do so much. I feel like things are attainable. We can do things even with little support. Anything is is attainable. You know, we can try. And even if we fail, we can just do our best, right? Yeah. Right on. Maybe Maybe one day down the road, students will actually be able to travel to the International Space Station. That'd be really cool to see. Shia, is there any anything you want to share about the experience? Anything that you thought, you know, people might find interesting? Uh, it was on the TV, like, there's, like, the space station, like, like moving to Europe. And I thought it would be really slow, but it was, like, when I look, like, back, it's like, it just moving. I was like, man, I missed it. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much, Shia. And hopefully one day we'll see Shia be one of the future astronauts down the road. That'd, that'd be kind of cool to see. I can't wait to see it either. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks so much for your time. You guys have a great day. Thank great you. weekend. You too. Bye. That was HBR's Russell Subiano talking to Lanai Elementary School teacher Daniel Erickson and fourth grader Shia Costales about connecting with an astronaut aboard the International Space Station via amateur radio. season of the HBO series Succession begins Sunday. On the next Fresh Air, we listen back to our interviews with Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy, the patriarch in a family-owned business empire, Kieran Culkin, who plays Roman, the immature jokey son, and Matthew McFadden, who plays the put-upon son-in-law Tom Wamsgans. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from the Hanahaoli School Professional Development Center, supporting the island's teachers who help to pave the path for a better future for the children of Hawaii. Learn more at hanahaoli.org pdc. tech industry continues to grow. It's looking for more help to add to its skilled workforce. The University of Hawaii and Chamber of Commerce Hawaii are doing what they can to develop a young pool of talent through its Tech Days of Spring series of events that kicked off this week. The Conversations Lillian Song spoke with Alan Ito, head of the Information Technology Workforce Development Program at UH. I've talked to employers and I've had one employer tell me it's just a travesty that our young people locally don't know what we're doing as companies here in Hawaii in the technology field. Mm. And, and why do students leave the state to search for IT jobs? So anecdotally, you know, from what I hear and in talking with employers, you know, a lot of young people leave the state because they may not be aware of the kinds of opportunities there are in organizations in Hawaii. You know, they often feel that to get a good job in technology, they need to leave the state and go to the mainland. And that's not necessarily so. A lot of our companies in Hawaii are doing some interesting work, innovative work. And if a young person is just leaving because they feel they need to do that for work, I'd say, hey, take a second look at what companies in Hawaii are doing and see if there's opportunities for you here. What sort of jobs feed into information technology, that pipeline? It's actually pretty broad, but, you know, one of the fields that I'm sure most people hear about today is cybersecurity. You know, that's an IT job. You also have software developers and software engineers who develop code that help run computers. You have infrastructure and networking professionals who help with the connections of computers and different devices. You have people in data analytics and data science. You know, you have project managers people who bring these other professions together to help make things happen in an organization. So that's a real important role. And then you have people 
more on the business side who help with the planning, seeing how technology can be used to improve organizations and their processes. And with Tech Days of Spring, what you are doing is bringing the workforce to the table, which is that young student who is interested in information science, computer science, as well as those employers. Correct. As well as educators. So the educators, you know, become more aware of what technology jobs in Hawaii are because they're the ones who are on the front line with the students, you know, so then they can better inform their students as to what the opportunities are in front of them. And what is that grade, that age that educators really should be helping to coach, to mentor that talent? At what age is that? Mm, You know, that's hard to say. You know, it's actually pretty early. For me, personally, I would think if we could start talking about it in the elementary school level, I think that would be great, but definitely by middle school. And the reason for that is for someone to go into a tech field, they often need a pretty good background in science and mathematics. And to do that, you need to start, it builds on itself, right? So you need to start taking the required math classes and science classes. So by the time you graduate from high school and say go on to community college or to the university, you have that proper background. Mm. Math and science, very important building blocks And it's not just the subject matter itself, but it's also the way you think. You know, what a lot of employers today are saying is they are looking for people who are problem solvers and who can apply technology to help them address issues that they have in their businesses. You know, so part of that is, you know, being able to think critically, critical thinking, people talk about a lot, um, and being able to look at a situation and help make some order out of chaos and help solve problems. What sort of companies are here that we aren't thinking about? Yeah, so, um, you know, I just had lunch with a managed service provider. These are companies in Hawaii that provide technology services to small and mid-sized businesses. So they're basically like the IT shop for small companies. And the person I had lunch with was saying how people just don't know that they exist, that they're around. So that's one example. But when I look at employers in Hawaii, I put them into three different groups. So one is your technical companies or technical service providers, like the MS managed service providers or companies that do consulting and IT, do software development, either for the government or for businesses. So that's one category. And then you have the whole defense industry in Hawaii, you know, which is, as I think most people know, is very large. They're constantly looking for people and technology. And then the third group are companies that aren't necessarily technology companies. We're talking about our banks, our hospitals, our educational organizations. So their mission is not technology. However, they often use technology to help them fulfill their mission. And some of our largest employers in the technology field are these companies. It's not just computers now. It's almost any device. Good examples would be in the healthcare industry. Almost any device, x-ray machines, MRI machines, they're all connected to computers. They all have computers embedded in them. Most of them are connected to networks. If you think about your elevator system or your air conditioning system, they're all controlled by computers. And you need people who understand computers to help protect them and make sure that hackers can't get into them, as well as people to help maintain them and keep them running. You know, it's really about economic development in Hawaii. The technology sector is an opportunity for us to grow and strengthen an area of our economy and put more attention on technology as a driver for economy in Hawaii. And then also, you know, many of the businesses that we have, many of the industries that we depend on, such as defense, such as hospitality, are dependent on technology. So if we can improve our technology workforce in Hawaii and get our next generation to stay here and, you know, take on these very important and challenging positions, you know, I think it helps Hawaii overall in general. And, you know, when I was reading up on Tech Days of Spring, I read this quote from University of Hawaii President David Lassner, who I understand has a background in computer science, started his doctorate in communication and information science at the university while working there as a contractor. A great example of IT success. He had this to say, 
the need throughout the community for these skills at multiple levels of expertise has never been greater. Our goal is to connect our graduates with local employers who are looking to hire into these high-paying, in-demand jobs and then provide continuing education opportunities to support professional development and promotion. So when we are looking at these jobs, cost of living in Hawaii is hard, Mm -hmm. one of the highest in the nation. But when you get a job in this sector? They tend to be well-paying jobs, and the opportunity for advancement is also great. You know, I think as David pointed out, you know, technology is constantly changing and constantly evolving. So people in the field, you know, need to be constant learners. I mean, you have to love learning because that's what you're going to be doing. But with that learning comes increased opportunity for you as an individual. And Tech Days of Spring, eight days, the final event goes into April 6th? April 6th, yes. April 6th. Are there other resources or mentorships that if a young person were listening today, how would you, where would you point them to? There's a lot of different activities going on. So, for example, at the um, middle school and high school level, you know, they have things like Gen Cyber or Cyber Patriots, which are camps that are held for middle schoolers and high schoolers. There's computer clubs that you can join. There are actually certifications that someone in high school could take the class for and to try to get. Some of them don't require experience, but just study and taking an exam. You know, so there's a lot of different ways. Robotics is another area. Someone interested in technology could join a robotics club or take a robotics class. So lots of different ways for our next generation to start getting their feet wet in the technology field. What is the breakdown? Do you, are you seeing more, more girls getting involved? You know, I still see a lot of guys. You know, I think we could use more girls. Also, there are groups. For example, there's a group at the University of Hawaii called SWITCH, which is a group of females in the technology field. So, so they are there. I think we could use more. And as we wind down, final thoughts? just like to make a pitch for Tech Days of Spring. And the whole idea is to increase awareness of the students and the next generation, if you will, in Hawaii of opportunities in the technology field. You know, we have some events that are going to be in person, meet and greets, for example, or talk story events with tech professionals and tech leaders. As part of the Tech Days of Spring, we also have a virtual career fair, followed the next week by a meet and greet career fair over at the University of Hawaii. So I'm trying to connect the students along with the educators, along with industry. Especially for our next generation out there, if you haven't yet signed up for it, you know, take a look at the virtual career fair that's happening Friday the 24th from 10 to 1 o'clock. You can go out to the Tech Days of Spring website, go.hawaii.edu slash Mary 3 And that has links to all of the different events and ways that you can register. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that was Alan Ito, head of the IT Workforce Development at the University of Hawaii. He was talking with HPR's Lillian Song about connecting the dots for IT talent and jobs. Tech Days of Spring is currently underway. We'll have links to more information on the conversation webpage later today. Jennifer Lopez is a rom-com queen, but New York Magazine features writer Rachel Handler noticed a pattern in some of her movies. Not only had I seen like 10 movies where she got married, but four movies where she planned a wedding. That's kind of like your Jerry Seinfeld moment. Like, what's up with that? (laughs) What's up with that? Exploring the Jennifer Lopez wedding industrial complex canon next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University.
This weekend, a number of events are taking place to mark Prince Kuhio Day, which is observed as a state holiday on Monday. Prince Jonah Kuhio Kalani Aniole was the only Hawaii monarch who was a delegate to the U.S. Congress. He started the Hawaiian Homelands Program, and a parade in his honor takes place near the JHHL headquarters in Kapolei at 5 p.m. Saturday. Kuhio also started the Hawaiian Civic Club movement, which advocates for Native Hawaiian political and cultural issues. We thought it fitting to learn more about the Association of Hawaiian Civic Clubs as it marks its 105th anniversary this year. We talked to Dre Kalili, the current association president. She's the first millennial to hold the post and is also believed to be the youngest ever in its history. So when Kuhio was our with Hawaii's non-voting delegate to Congress, you know, he was constantly advocating for things that would benefit, whether it was funding or programs or other authorizations in the law that would help Hawaii. And when it came time for him to advocate for what became the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act and the homesteading program, he had trouble advocating because I think the points of reference for his colleagues as far as who was from Hawaii were, you know, those that had sugar interests here and they weren't the native Hawaiian community. And so that, I guess, sparked some inspiration for Kuhio and he gathered you know, his closest friends who were one, Native Hawaiian, two, professionals, and three leaders in the community here, and took them to Washington, and he called them the first Hawaiian Civic Club. And he basically introduced them to his colleagues and said, these folks are members of this community that I am advocating for. And that group of his friends became the Hawaiian Civic Club, which then became the Hawaiian Civic Club of Honolulu, which we honor and recognize as a mother club. And the whole movement started from there. And so today we have 61 independent and autonomous clubs that are all chartered under the Association of Hawaiian Civic Clubs. And altogether, I think we have about 3,500 members. Our 61 clubs are organized into what we call district councils. So Oahu, for example, has 26 clubs, and the Oahu Council will organize those clubs' activities on the island. Maui, which includes all of Maui County, Kauai, and Hawaii Island, and then the continent. So on the continent, we have a number of clubs ranging from California to Colorado, Washington State, and Oregon, Utah, Nevada, all the way to Washington, D.C., and, you know, that may surprise some people, but then it may not because there is just a large number of uh, Hawaiians living abroad. There's a, a large number of, like you said, Native Hawaiians living abroad, but there's also a ton of people who just love Hawaii and want to help us to do the work that we are doing and in, in advocating for, you know, improvement to conditions for our community. And um, every club has their own membership requirements and some you know have membership open to everybody and whoever is willing to jump in and do the work is welcome to join okay so you do not have to be native hawaiian to join a club depends on the club some clubs have a requirement some don't but because the clubs are independent and autonomous they decide what the membership requirement you do get involved in in legislation you know uh the whole idea behind you know how the first club was created that's absolutely right. So we were guided by our strategic plan, and the strategic plan is founded on on four ideas. One, we're going to grow leaders, which is a huge vision that Kuhio had, to you know take those who are ready and willing to be leaders in our community and support them, whether it's through training and education, whether it's helping them you know seek public office. Another goal that we have is amplifying the voice of our community. We know there are many voices in our community. And we're just but one organization that, that has a voice. But we want to make sure that that voice is heard as loudly and clearly as it can be and, and all the right rooms where decisions are made that affect our community. The next is we focus on raising a resilient lahui, which means advocating for those specific issues or decisions or policies that are going to you know support the well-being of, of not only our community and our people, but of the land and the resources and you know everything that makes Hawaii Hawaii. And the last thing is just having foresight. You know, I think one of the things that Kuhio is really known for is, you know, having incredible vision and then doing the work that needed to be done to either make that vision uh, realized or at least chart a course and start paving the way for for things to happen to, to reach that vision. And so we want to make sure we channel that and we do what we need to. And this is more an internal goal, but we make sure that we are doing what we need to today to make sure our organization succeeds for the next 100 years. We are a 
five-year-old organization this year, and we've made it 100 years, and we want to make sure we'll be around another 100. So with these different clubs, is there one that maybe might have more of a focus, let's say, on education and another one more on health? Yes, actually. So we have a couple of clubs that are thematic or they they, they focus on a theme. And so we have two clubs in particular that focus on perpetuation and proliferation of Hawaiian language. They conduct their business in Hawaiian. And one of those clubs is based on Hawaii Island. That's the Kilohaina Hawaiian Civic Club. And then on Maui, we have the Queenie Piolani Hawaiian Civic Club. And then for healthcare, we have a fairly new club that was recently chartered, um, the Queen Queen Julia Kapi'olani Hawaiian Civic Club based in Maui also. By our governing documents, the association must hold an annual convention. That's pretty much our main purpose is holding the convention to gather all the members and figure out what's our platform, what are our position on issues, and that shapes our advocacy for, you know, for the coming years. And so generally speaking, our conventions are held the fourth quarter of every year, and we do rotate locations. So every council that I previously mentioned will host it every five years. This year, our convention is going to be in October here on Oahu at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. Last year, we were in Seattle, and our um, clubs in the Pacific Northwest hosted us, and next year, we'll be on Maui. And so if anyone is listening out there and wants to join the Hawaiian Civic Clubs, how do they do that? I think the best place to start is our website. It's aohcc.org, so Association of Hawaiian Civic Clubs, the AOHCC, and on our website, you will find a lot of information about activities that we're doing. You can subscribe to our newsletter, and then you can also find clubs that are in your area or clubs that are doing work that are interesting and reach out and figure out how to join. And that was Dre Kalili, president of the Association of Hawaiian Civic Clubs, which was started by Prince Kuhio. In addition to the Saturday parade, there will also be a lay draping at his statue at Kuhio Beach as part of the Kuhio Festival in Waikiki. That does it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, as we mark Prince Kohio Day, a state holiday, we will hear the stories behind the Royal Society's Preserving Hawaiian Traditions. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. John DeMello provided our backyard quiz only, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. 